Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast and one of a collection of podcasts recorded live at UK Reef in Leeds in May. This recording is of a panel session delivered in partnership with Landsec that takes a deeper look at 15-minute cities. Chaired by EG's Deputy Editor Tim Burke, this fascinating hour-long discussion with a quartet of experts from across the built environment delivers a range of insights and talking points that are well worth tuning into. So, pour yourself a cuppa, plug in and enjoy EG at UK Reef, connecting places to people. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for uh, this panel discussion on 15-minute cities and that ongoing evolution of how we, uh, we rethink and revamp and regenerate our, um, our towns and cities. I'm Tim Burke. I'm the deputy editor at EG, and um, it's a real pleasure, uh, real pleasure to be here with you all. Thanks for, thanks for making time to join us, and great to have worked with Landsec as well on this session today, so thank you for, for their support. Um, Over the next 45 minutes or so, we will be tackling how we rethink and then revamp our towns and cities from from homes to shops and offices and then the the spaces and infrastructure in between all of those. Crucially, we're going to be talking about how we need a a sense of collaboration between different different stakeholders to make that work and how we can ensure that public and private partnerships uh, are really driving the the best for the future of our, our towns and cities. We have a great panel to weigh in on this. Um, I've got lots of questions for them, but of course I hope you will too, and we'll, um, we'll have opportunities for you to put any queries that you've got to the, um, to the panelists. I'm going to ask them each to introduce themselves and just give us a, a few thoughts on the perspective that they're bringing to the discussion so that you don't just have to listen to me rattle off their LinkedIn bios. Um, I will start with Jennifer, and then we'll work our way down the line. Thanks. Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be here. I'm Jennifer Dowtong. I'm Acting Chief Executive of Lewisham Council, which is a borough in the southeast of London. For those of you who aren't familiar with Lewisham, we're a really young, diverse borough. Uh, We were the Mayor's Borough of Culture last year, and we were the first council, I believe, unless there's anyone in this room who will tell me otherwise, to have achieved Borough of Sanctuary status in the UK, which we're really proud of. I'm really pleased to be here today talking about 15-minute cities. I'm old enough to know um, that some of these concepts go round and are a bit circular, so I remember a time when we used to talk about sustainable cities and sustainable neighbourhoods. And I don't really think it's a coincidence that 15-minute neighbourhoods started to be talked about in earnest during COVID, really, because that really has been a trigger for us to reimagine the places in which we live. Um, There's no longer this expectation, although I think we're seeing a little bit of a rebalancing around this, that the way that you live is that you travel a really long distance for five days a week, um, and then you do fun stuff at the weekend. And it's a real opportunity for boroughs like Lewisham, I think, because we've been traditionally seen as a bit of a dormitory borough, but there's now a real opportunity for us to use um, this, this kind of change in working patterns to really refocus our efforts and our investment in some of the different neighbourhoods that we have across the borough. So really pleased to be here, and I'll hand on to Mike. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Mike Hood. I'm the Chief Executive of Landsat UNI. Um, about 18 months ago, we saw an opportunity to create a business that would deliver thoughtful, impactful, long-term investment in communities through regeneration, and that has been what we've created, and we are uh, delivering a number of regeneration projects across the country, including one with our partners in Lewisham. Uh, I, I guess I'm, 
I've been really interested over the last couple of days. There, there are a number of themes which all of us are in absolute agreement on. We would all like our cities to be much more sustainable. We would all like them to be much more livable. We'd like them to be safe. We'd like them to be affordable, accessible for everybody. Uh, I guess what's most interesting to me is beyond those themes, uh, and if you like, 15-minute cities is one of those, is actually how we now deliver those in the communities that we're working. And every single one of those communities is different, has a different set of requirements and requires a different solution. And certainly we believe that by empowering communities to develop their own solutions and then being part of the delivery of that solution, working with our partners, uh, then that delivers long-term and sustainable value for all, which includes our shareholders, but fundamentally also includes those communities who are more than capable of finding solutions themselves if they're given the opportunity to do so. Thanks, Mike. Andreas. Okay, thank you, and hello to <coughs> all of you. My name is Andreas Markitis. I'm a chairman of a transport planning and engineering consultancy called Markitis Associates. But um, having said that, I'm here today representing the Academy of Urbanism. And um, some of you may not know anything about the Academy, but the Academy of Urbanism was set up uh, about 20 years ago um, with the only objective of uh, gathering knowledge and information and then disseminating that information about um, better places. How do we create better places, sustainable, sustainable good urban living places. And um, in fact, this is, uh, the academy has been a great school for me personally, because as an engineer, you might think all I'm interested in is designing roads, but I've learned that there's a lot more to designing roads. It's a lot more important to design better places for people to live in. Now, with regards to the 15-minute city, uh, by way of introduction, I wanted to make two points. Um, the 15-minute city principle is not new. It has been with us for many years. It has been applied in Australia, in America, in Spain. It's just that um, Anne Hidalgo, the, the, the Paris mayor, made it a slogan a few years ago, and suddenly we are all talking about it. But it's nothing new. It's something that we have all been trying to achieve for a long time now. The, the other thing about the 15-minute city is that um, it's nothing to do with the 15 minutes. It's not a physical constraint. It's a concept. And the 15-minute city is about creating better communities, whatever that means. Uh, it's about connectivity. It's about diversity. It's about livability. And it's nothing to do with 15 minutes. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all this afternoon. Um, I'm Michelle Sachs. I'm Director of Deputy Chief Exec of Growth across the largest three council partnership in the country. So I represent uh, East Lindsay, Boston and South Holland. And just in terms of geography, that I call it affectionately half of Lincolnshire, but it is effectively from Cleethorpes down to the very edge of Peterborough. So it's a really large geographical area that we cover. Uh, around 310,000 population. So probably the complete opposite to Jennifer's um, uh, locality. If, I think we probably couldn't get more opposite, Jennifer. Um, <laughs> some of our challenges, I think it's really interesting in terms of we have a really diverse range of places. We have coastal, we have the Lincolnshire Worlds, we have urban areas, all very different. And one of the key things that we said when we came together as a partnership is that we would preserve and enhance the individuality of place. 
And I think some of the logistics around the concept of 15-minute cities, as um, Andreas has set out, is the challenge of what is the local infrastructure in terms of connectivity that exists. And I think, just to set a few sort of facts <coughs> out there, uh, in, in our coast, we have the highest concentration of static caravans in Europe. So we have 30,000, just shy of 30,000, so that's a big 30,000 static caravans on the East Coast that then for a very um, short period of our glorious summer means that we are jam-packed with people. Um, we have really poor public transport. Um, one of our big employers on the East Coast has to work on the basis that uh, they, they run a, an amusement, uh, you know, like a theme park, um, Fantasy Island. At any given day in the summer, their starting shift at 9 o'clock could have between 10 and 15 people not turn up. Not because they've not turned up, but because their bus wasn't, didn't, just didn't turn up. So they've got to wait for the next hour before they get to work. That has a real operating function on that business because of the safety requirements of operating big, heavy machinery theme rides. Um, it can take some of our residents two and a half hours to access a hospital by public transport. That's two and a half hours to go and see, uh, to get treatment. And also, it can take 40 minutes to go to the cinema. If you live in Skegness or Maplethorpe, uh, it's 40 minutes to Boston to access a, th a cinema. So in terms of 15-minute cities, it's a challenge. So in terms of town centre generation, regeneration, we are working really closely, and collaboration, is, as Tim said, is absolutely key. It's working with all of our stakeholders to make our places more attractive and increase that dwell time, and people want to come in for longer. But for some time, they still have to use their car while we build on that infrastructure. Perfect. Thank you all. Um, Mike, the variety of, of regeneration schemes that, um, that Landsec has had a hand in, and you and I in, in its earlier guise um, before, is, is really broad. May, maybe take us through, if you could, some of the, some of the key projects uh, that might that might kind of underscore how you've, you've pulled in some of the concepts around this 15-minute idea, and to Andreas's point, of course, not just about the 15-minute notion, but that kind of broader sense of, of, of building a community. Um, how some of your projects underscore the, the learnings that you and I and, and now Landsec have, have pulled together over those. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we, well, we have projects across the country. So we ha have projects in Glasgow, projects in Manchester, Cambridge, and a number of projects in London. There are a number of common themes, and uh, I guess it's fair to say all of them are very large scale. All of them are complex. None of them go entirely as we would plan, but uh, the success of them is fundamentally built on partnership. And uh, if I take Mayfield, for example, in Manchester, we are partnered with the City Council, with Transport for Greater Manchester, <coughs> and London and Continental Railways. They, they are the landowners that enabled that project to happen. And it is through our relationship that we are delivering uh, uh, really early and very positive wins at Mayfield. We completed our first uh, uh, project on site with the, with the delivery of a new park there, which is seven and a half acres of new public green space, which Manchester has uh, lovingly adopted already. I think we've had 1.8 million people through Mayfield over the last five years. And the way in which we've approached that project was to open the doors on day one, not put a hoarding up, create a, a program of temporary and we hope to be permanent activities on site <coughs> that sought to engage with the community of Mayfield and the wider Manchester city centre on what would make a good solution for Mayfield. And 
that is now coming to life with the support from central government, uh, alignment with the GMCA and with Manchester City Council. The, the government have, have uh, contributed by enabling that part to happen in the middle of lockdown. And that project is already delivering significant and uh, uh, important social impact for that community. I, I, I'm sure uh, Jennifer will talk more about our project in Lewisham, but that's, that's another example where we have a really complex problem to solve. Mm. Uh, and that's not about uh, ignoring Lewisham Town Centre as it is. It's a successful town centre which delivers jobs for people, it delivers services for people, and uh, what we need to do is engage meaningfully with the community in Lewisham to try and find the right solution. And we're doing that through a range of different activities. But I think it's fair to say across all of our projects, there are probably three key themes. One is that they're all in partnership and they need to be based on trust, those partnerships. The second is we, we have meaningful engagement from the start throughout and on an ongoing basis. And the third, which I think is the, the, the most exciting thing that's come about through bringing our businesses together, is not only do we have creativity and uh, uh, brave solutions that perhaps uh, you and I were perhaps known for, we have huge technical capability and we have a balance sheet. So that when we sit down with that community and we make a promise, we know that we can deliver it because we're a long-term investor in those cities and places and we have an alignment of interest that we want to create long-term and sustainable value. Yeah. Andreas, on that notion of partnership, um, you kindly shared a, a, a paper that you've, you've written with, um, with EG, and you underlined in, in that the, uh, I guess, the challenge of overcoming parts of the built environment that kind of operate in, in, in silos. What, what gets in the way, in your mind, of greater okay. collaboration between these parties, and how do, how do they overcome it? Yeah. What, what I find really puzzling is that um, we've... Uh, like I said before, we talk about 15-minute city principles. We've been, we've been heralding the benefits of that, and yet we don't actually achieve a 15-minute neighborhood all the time. Uh, you know, the, the exemplars are very, very rare. So, so here we are talking about the 15-minute city, and all the experts go to see a good example, but, but it doesn't happen every day. And uh, it's really puzzling, because the concept of it is so easy to understand, and we all believe in livability and connectivity and the better standard of living and all of that, but we don't achieve it. So as a professional, I've been asking myself the question, why? Why do we fail? to build, you know, around this principle, which is so easy. And there are so many different reasons, reasons why. One of it is that, um, is what, what I consider to be the lack of an integrated approach. So you get a project, like a land securities project, you know, and um, you have the project manager, you have the engineer, you have the architect, you have, and they all work in silos. You know, everybody does their own little job, but they don't look at the project in its totality. And this is very different to how the, the Europeans approach it. As, as part of the Academy of Urbanism, I have visited a number of North European cities usually. And you get this, you, you don't get the breakup of the different professions. You, everybody sits around a, a table, whether they're economists or engineers or, or planners, or that, 
and they all put their thinking hats together and they produce a good quality project. So one reason is the integrated approach that's, that's lacking. The other, the other reason is that we don't give enough time for any project to achieve its obje objectives. Um, I, I've given this example before. Uh, Freiburg is, is a place that uh, everybody in my profession wants to visit because it's a 15-minute city principle. It's a, it's a livable, a sustainable place. Why, have they, why were they successfully achieving that? Well, that's because they had a leader. They had a leader who was in place for 30 years. The planning, the planning chap in Freiburg, somebody called Professor Wolf Dasseking, was in place for 30 years. And he said to the people of Freiburg, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make it a place that everybody will want to come and visit because it will achieve all the standards of livability and sustainability that we aspire to. And they gave him the opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid here we don't have that. Uh, we don't have that luxury. Politics intervenes, and every four or five years, leaders change, and they are not given the opportunity to to achieve their vision, if you like. There are many other. There are many other factors. Mm. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to leave <laughs> it there. I can come back if you if you want me. I'd love to get um, maybe Michelle um, and then Jennifer's thoughts on on what it takes to make these partnerships what it takes to make these partnerships work and what you look for in, in a private sector partner like, for example, a, a, a Landsec. Uh, if I'll go first then, sure. thank you. It's absolutely that, that trust and it's the ability to speak frankly with no fallouts and you know that you can trust each other to have those conversations and it, it doesn't mean because you don't agree. And I think it's also from a council's perspective appreciating we don't have all the answers and it's not just us to deliver. We can only deliver in, in true collaboration. And it's also remembering that whilst we might be having, Mike and I might be having those conversations, we need to make sure that we're engaging our health colleagues, our transport colleagues, our business colleagues, because actually they all have a part and a role to play. They're either being really pragmatic <coughs> and providing really important data, or they're actually providing solutions that can fit in with the, the end outcome. Um, and it's that, and, and I think the other thing is being, the, the conversations need to start early. And I think when we spoke earlier, uh, a few days ago, if you've got, if, if someone's interested in coming into, into my patch to, to invest and have a conversation, then I'm not going to push them through the formal planning process of, we'll put a pre-app, you've got an interest in a, in a, a plot, put a pre-app in. Actually come and chat to me and chat to the wider team. We'll bring who you need to speak to, to talk through what, what might be a challenge, where that might go. So it's an evolution of ideas from the very, very start. So there's a collective ownership of that. Our politicians feel more connected to the result because they can think they've, well, they can see, not think, see, they've been able to influence the outcomes. That broader public-private partnership that extends into those other partners as well, they also own it because they've been involved in that evolution of ideas and therefore it's more likely to land because if you don't feel an emotional connection to a project, you're not, you're not supporting it. You've got less skin in the game to make it work. But if you've committed and, and put your ideas onto the table, you want it to work, you want it and you will will it to succeed. So I think there are just some observations around that, that and ultimately it's that trust element. Hmm. Jennifer, what about um, 
you and colleagues in Lewisham's experiences of this? I think I probably want to say a little bit about the, um, the potential for the concept of 15-minute neighbourhoods. And, and I entirely agree that it is a concept and it's not about the actual travel time, although I appreciate if it's taking you two and a half hours to get to a hospital, you might feel very, very, very differently. I do think there is something around um, equity within this and the spreading of resource, the spreading of capital, the decentralisation of that opportunity, which you know, we're playing with at a relatively small scale in Lewisham because we're, we are a borough in London. But you know, I don't need to tell the people in this room that there's a wider conversation that is talking about what, where are investors going, where are they putting their time and their effort, and what are the outcomes for people. There was a real opportunity in thinking about you know, what is it that makes a place livable that forces us to question where we put those, those investments and why we put them there. So for us, there's an opportunity for us to really work with our investors like Landsec and bring them to bits of the borough, Lewisham Town Centre for the time being, Catford going forward, which is an area where we're looking to really amplify opportunities around you know, addressing some of the, the very knotty infrastructure mm -hmm. quandaries that we have been left with as a legacy of London town planning, which is planning at a regional scale that thinks about what is good for London in terms of the movement of goods, the movement of traffic, not necessarily what is good for residents of Catford in terms of the movements of goods and traffic. So, you know, really pleased that TfL have finally, after 60 years of working with us, uh, I haven't been working on it for 60 years, I, I hasten to add, um, launched their public consultation around moving the South Circular in Catford. It's incredibly important for our residents. Um, we were the first borough where we had the coroner report saying that um, a, young, a young girl, a young resident of Lewisham, nine years old, had died as a result of poor air quality. So I, I don't want to lose that in, in this discussion around why it's important. It is about empowering people, as you said earlier, Mike, um, to help create and forge their own destinies, tell us what they want. So what I'm looking for in a partner is somebody who's going to be with us you know, on that journey, who is really going to listen to what it is that's important to us, what's important to our residents, what's important to our politicians. And I always find in these partnerships that you, you understand how good they are when things get tough, because the people who are good partners will, will continue to talk to you and they'll stick with it even though it's really hard. And, and you need that when you're tackling thorny issues and difficult problems. So, you know, hats off to TfL because they've been at it for 60 years and, you know, they're finally coming to the table, which is brilliant. Mike, in your, um, in your city's manifesto, you, you talked about this need for partnership and you, um, you said real estate and, and local government need to, need to engage as partners, not as adversaries. I mean, at, at, its, at its worst, when it doesn't work, how does that adversarial approach manifest itself and how, how can you then attempt to work around that? Look, it, it, as I said earlier, it, it's absolutely core to our, to our business model. Uh, I think anybody that thinks that you can go and work with a community and, and not engage with that community and with the key stakeholders in that community, whether it be landowners, uh, the local authority and others, uh, in a manner that, that doesn't deliver good partnership is, uh, is deluded and, will, uh, and it will not result in the right, the right solution. I, I think for too long, uh, uh, we as an industry have not built trust, and that can be attributable to some of our own behaviours, but it can also be attributable to uh, 
the fact that everybody has approached this in a very adversarial way. I think it's, it, you know, it's seen as a process, particularly the planning process, where there is a negotiation where one side wins and the other side loses. And the reality is that should be a conversation about what delivers the best outcome for the community. Because if you create a place that is valued by that community, it is valuable by any metric that you choose to use. And I think that's, that's the fundamental basis that we kind of need to move on. And, and there are a variety of things that help that, uh, as you say, uh, Jennifer, and I think this is really important. And it came up in a session that we were having with LCR recently where we were talking about our partnership and what's worked well and what's worked badly. These projects don't go to plan. Yeah, they are complex. They are uh, very long. They tend to go through multiple political cycles. Our, our project in Brighton, which recently won awards, I think we had five political administrations over the life of that project, uh, and, and they are very high risk. And, and what we can do if we work well together is we can take the frictional cost out of that process, which is a cost that nobody benefits from, uh, and we can invest that in delivering a better outcome. And I think we've seen that uh, on projects like Mayfield. We're really optimistic about our project at Lewisham, our project uh, in Camden at the O2 on Finchley Road. These are all projects that could deliver really meaningful uh, change. It's, it's by far the largest uh, uh, contribution to do, delivering affordable housing in the borough of Camden for, for many years. And uh, together with that local authority and with that community, I think we could deliver something that, that turns a very large car park into something that is, is far more additive to the community that live around, delivers green space, play space, local health facilities, as well as valuable, valuable housing. And, so I guess it works well if you approach things in a kind of a, a way that you would approach your friends. You've got to build trust, and, and trust comes over time. You have to earn it over the long term, and it disappears very quickly when you behave badly. And uh, I think we've got to recognise that unless we get that right, then we don't deliver the, the optimal outcome. Um, can you tell us a little about the community charter that Landsec set up? Because that's now, that's now helping to shape what you're, what you're doing in Lewisham. I think, am I right in saying that's the first scheme that you've used that charter on? Yeah, it is. And that's absolutely right. And uh, I think this is important. It's important to make a commitment and then to, to do something. Uh, the, the principle is really simple. If, if you talk to communities in an authentic way and you're prepared to listen, then you deliver something that they want and something that they need. And what we set out within that charter was a commitment to engaging in a particular way, engaging early, engaging meaningfully, showing up and going and listening, and in particular, uh, listening to groups of the community that wouldn't always engage through a conventional planning process. So some of the projects that we've worked on in partnership are projects like the, uh, the Design Code Champion Group, for example, where we have paid a group of the community to come in and collaborate with us on design. We've worked, for example, in partnership with the Circle Collective, where that uh, 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 initiative has engaged a much younger group of the community who, you know, if anybody like me has children, I, I can't even engage with my son uh, uh, verbally. It has to be via WhatsApp. And actually looking at different ways one engages with, frankly, the people who will experience and realise in 10 years' time the, the outcome of the process that we're trying to deliver is fundamentally important. We want those children to be people that want to stay in Lewisham, want to live in Lewisham, want to work in Lewisham, mm -hmm. and want to create economic value for Lewisham, and that's good regeneration. Uh, I, I think that uh, the community charter is, is really just us holding ourselves to account, saying that we believe in proper, long-term, meaningful engagement. We're prepared to change our plans 
and listen, mm. uh, and we'll make that commitment. But fundamentally, it, you know, it, it's easy to make the commitment. It's actually doing it. And, and what's most satisfying is looking at, across all of our projects, uh, the way in which our teams are engaging with uh, 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 groups across the community to deliver the right, the right outcome. And I think as an industry, that's something that yeah, we, we, we are doing more of, and I think we can continue to get better at that. Please, yeah. Can, yeah. <clears throat> I just wanted to come in. Um, it was something that um, uh, Jennifer actually said, that the example you gave of the nine-year-old girl in Lewisham who died from air quality, etc. I, um, I was in Utrecht with the Academy of Urbanism uh, three or four years ago, and we went to see how the Dutch uh, do uh, you know, place-making. And at the end of that visit, um, uh, I asked the planning director, in one word, I said to him, what is the key objective that you, as the director of this city, have for your city? And if I had asked that question of any planning director in the UK, they might have said to me, I don't know, housing or uh, finance, economic, uh, economic su success or uh, whatever. Um, he said to me, the key word that I work to, my team works to, is health. We want to achieve healthy citizens, he said. And every question we take, we always, every, every decision we take, we always ask ourselves the question, will this create healthy citizens? And, and the question applies to whether we're going to build a road, or whether we're going to build houses, or whether we always come back to, will this create healthy citizens? And only if the answer is yes, will you go ahead and do it? Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because it comes down to what communities we want to build, what priorities we have as a society. And once we, are, once we accept and identify our priorities, how much money we put into it, the investment that um, people have spoken about. So it's no good saying, you know, we want to have a sustainable village and connectivity, etc. when you spend 100 million building a bypass and you spend one pound building a cycleway, for example. So it all comes down to the values that we have as a society, the priorities that we adopt and the investment and focus that we give to those priorities. You've um, a lot of a lot of great examples that that, that you've you've given so far in this discussion have been around um, global cities. I wonder where where do you look to in in the UK for okay, for inspiration? You've, um, you've, uh, you're challenging me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can I say Lewisham. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to now. I, ha I have worked in many different places in the UK, um, and um, it is fair to say that um, it, it is a challenge. You know, we all, as I said before, we all aspire to the ideal, but when it comes to dealing with a particular uh, council, you are dealing with officers who have got certain views, um, certain uh, misconceptions maybe, um, based on their own experiences and, um, and training. So um, the, someone might want to achieve a sustainable city centre. Um, I've been working in Guildford for the last um, three or four years. 
And um, the, the highway officer said to me, yeah, we're going to achieve a sustainable city center. And, and when I said, I said, well, shall we reduce car parking, for example? No, no, we can't reduce car parking because that lowers value and also it may send people to park in other neighborhoods. So the offices in different councils have got different challenges. But the main point really is that they have been educated to think in a certain way. Why do the Dutch think differently to the way we do? Because they have been trained in a different way. So my, my view, my own view, is that it all comes down to education. You know, if we teach people to value certain things rather than to be working to British standards in a silo, then we will be able to achieve um, better results and more sustainable 15-minute city places. So it's, it's the education, really, that's at the heart of it. Michelle, yeah. Thank you. I, I think, may I give a different perspective? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's around our communities as well. So I will give a real-life example of, uh, we have a 10, 12-acre site in the middle of Boston, which is uh, affectionately called PE21. We do have a better title of that now. But we have been, that's a project for town centre regeneration that we've had uh, developed in, in terms of a master plan since probably about 2018, 2019. And we went to the community, and at the minute, it is full of car, it is car parking. It's town centre, flat car parking. It is, it's, it's the most unwelcoming um, calling card you could have. It's where our bus station is, it's the route through from the train station. Yet it is in the heart, it's next to our fabulous stump, St. Botolph's, you know, the most tremendous building, I would say, in Lincolnshire, largest parish council in the, in the UK. Um, beautiful. And we were out, in, we were doing a consultation. We had um, what it looks like now, and we had the vision, which is an enhanced uh, town centre, um, a new park, picking up Mike's point, new fabulous public realm, unlocking health, um, new health co-joined facilities, um, new library provision, new older people, uh, older um, assisted living housing, fabulous. And I had people this close to me, Andreas, shouting in my face that they didn't want to lose their car parking. And I was saying, but look what you could have instead in my face, but we want our car, you're taking our car parking away. So I think it's not necessarily officers, it's mm. about the perception in our communities. And the lesson oh, yeah. from that very much was, this is the importance of true, again, coming back to that true consultation, that proper community engagement, to be able to bring your communities with you, to be able to have, and that was just a starting point. That wasn't what it was going to look like. That was, let's have those views and feed that in. So we knew, and we do want to remove, reduce yeah. that level of car parking in the town centre because the space could be so much um, better and aspirational, both in health outcomes, in training, you know, because of the library, digital connectivity, all of that, and so much um, for people to actually land in Boston and see a beautiful place as opposed to some really dreadful 1960s car parking and buildings. Um, so that's really, it's, it's sometimes that then your leaders, when you come back to community leadership, we've just had a, a, a change in Boston in terms of a, a, a change of administration. And some of that is, you know, 
I'm not saying at all this, this happens, but sometimes leaders can be fearful of change as well because we work on a four-year cyclical programme of leaders and, and politicians that meet, need to make sure their communities are, are, are with them as well. So those are some of the challenges. But the opportunity, because the opportunity is around really bringing people along. And one of the outcomes we will be doing as part of that project, which we have now secured levelling up for, is because of its proximity to the river, because of how uh, ancient Boston is, we will have an archaeology dig, um, which is part of the process, because that is fantastic for community engagement. It brings uh, community cohesion. It brings young people able to come and see, and that sense of place, then, in terms of where Boston was as a place and where it can go in the future. I couldn't agree more. Mm. But I mean, Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know, the change that we want to achieve um, is not only with the way offices approach things, mm. it's also with the way we, the people that are going to occupy that space, view it. And it goes back to the point I made about the values we have as you know, human beings. You know, what, what is it that matters most to us? Is it having a car or is it having um, a, you know, living close to nature, for example, or, or whatever? Like recognizing rather than paying lip service to the carbon emergency that we are all faced with. So it's, it's all of that. We are all in it together. So it's both ends of the spectrum that are Come important. Yeah. Um, we've got a little under 10 minutes to go. So I, I wanted to give anyone here who might have a question for uh, anyone on the panel an opportunity to ask. Any, any questions from the floor? Hi. Um, I think through the various panels that have been on, on this week, um, I think a lot of communities maybe feel like they're losing something um, when we're talking about 15-minute cities, net zero carbon, retrofitting. And I wonder how you can convince local people who are maybe quite upset that they are losing their car parking space. How do you convince them that the, the gains are so much better when there is so much resistance? I think there was um, the leader of Glasgow City Council, I saw her talk this morning, and it's very easy with um, pedestrianisation during COVID because you can say, look, we, we did this temporarily. Do you like it? Do you want to keep it? Um, I just wonder if you've got any kind of good examples where you've managed to convince people to come along on that journey and, and, and that resistance that there obviously seems to be. I mean, there's obviously been protesters outside against the 15-minute city as well, which um, has been interesting. Um, yeah. Jennifer, did you want to jump in first? Yeah, I think sometimes the jargon we use is really off-putting. That's, yeah. that's the first barrier. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're going about your day, somebody doorsteps you and says, would you like to live in a 15-minute city? What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> um, so there, there is something around not taking ourselves so seriously and, and talking to our residents. So, you know, we recognise having had... Um, we, Lewisham went from having no kind of low-traffic neighbourhood, more jargon... Um, to having one of the largest in Europe overnight during COVID. And that clearly was a swing that didn't go down very well. So recognising that in trying to be, you know, agile, fleet of foot, all of the things you want to be as a local authority, um, we'd probably overstep the mark a bit. We, we, we listened and we redesigned it in a way that pleased nobody. So probably was, was about right in terms of people who really love their cars feeling a little bit upset, people who really love their bicycles and pedestrianisation were a little bit upset. So that's probably as good a compromise as you're going to get. But what we've done now is, in terms of looking at the rest of the borough, 
we've, we've started a really in-depth, I think, I am biased, but I still think this, uh, a really innovative form of consultation around sustainable streets with our neighbourhoods. And we've picked two very different areas to start talking to residents about this. And we've essentially said, here are the things that um, we would like to introduce in your neighbourhood. Which, which of these would you be willing to accept a loss of parking for as part of this? Um, what would it take to convince you? Because what we will actually do is any of the income that we generate from you paying for parking, we will plough back into cycle hangers, better lighting, more trees, this sort of thing. And actually, we've mocked up what each street could look like. And I think part of this is around all of the kind of challenges that you get with any kind of change, because I don't think human beings are very well set up psychologically for change. I think the initial response is, oh, I'm quite comfortable as I am, thank you very much. Um, and I think uh, it's similar with regeneration, actually. When people start to see things happening, they start to, to understand what it is in real terms that is up for grabs here. And I think it's, it's not just selling the vision, it's also delivering those benefits early. So people can go and have a look at some of those pedestrianised areas in, in that controversial low-traffic neighbourhood that we pulled together, but also they, they get a visual... Um, we feed back to them what everybody else said, uh, and hopefully we think we've got, we've got one area that's for, one area that's against, and we'll just keep going around and asking until people choose that that's what they want. Yeah, yeah please, no, I, I please. I completely please. support that. I, th I think we, we quite like big, big policies and big answers, and yeah, I'm certain if I went and asked the girls and boys that stand outside of McDonald's at the Lewisham yeah. shopping centre, uh, <laughs> whether they knew what ESG was or whether they understood social impact, they'd just laugh at me. Uh, but they're the people that we need to connect with. And I think the answer is, is co-authoring a vision for a place and co-creating those solutions. And I, I guess there's, a, there's something about big, big regeneration with big R and small regeneration in that we tend to consider regeneration to be the types of big projects that we deliver at Mayfield, where... Frankly, they're so big we can answer all those questions. We can create our own 15-minute neighbourhood within one place. What are the more challenging projects are where you make interventions into places where there isn't that big bit of land or there isn't that big one sweeping solution? And it's how you create that collective vision with a diverse group of people, possibly many owners, and how between us uh, we can effectively bring that group of people together to have a discussion about what might be the right solution. It might be right just to go and close that one street because that's the rat run that everybody uses to get to the main road. But uh, if you make a statement saying we're going to close all of the streets, you, can, you understand that's not going to take all the community with you. So I think this, this idea of, you know, it comes back to this point, proper meaningful engagement you know, is, is something that we all recognise is, is, is the way of getting people on board. I think... As well, it's a, it's a dialogue, so it's not one-off consultations or one-off. Mm. Yeah. It, it's that evolution, so that, and also demonstrating that you listen. So if the scheme evolves and you can actually pinpoint where it's evolved because of some of the feedback you had, uh, and also being, it's that trust again, being honest where things can't change because actually the scheme doesn't stack up then or it doesn't, it doesn't work, it doesn't flow. But if you can show that you've listened where you, and made the changes where you're able to do, that builds trust. And I think the other thing is time, and it's a very good point around... If, you're, if you've got communities who feel they've been promised things in the past and various crashes have 
have meant that then the funding, you know, I'll go back to many of us will have had schemes that were about to start in, 20, in 2008 and, and various reasons that, and then we're back to where we are now again and people are thinking, yeah, but you said that 15 years ago. It might not have been Jennifer's point about 60 years ago. It might not have been Jennifer 60 <laughs> years ago, but it's the, the bureaucracy of the council. Mm. So I think it's, and it's, and, it, and again, I think the, I'm going to say stakeholders again. It's really important that when you do these schemes, it's not just the council that is the face of that, it's that broader range of stakeholders who are involved. Because if you've got, you know, some of your, your RSLs, um, your key employers, your health colleagues, your college, your schools, who are engaged in that process, they're, they're, they're also feeding and being able to share ideas and how it impacts on their sectors. So actually that aspiration around um, jobs and skills and health and wealth creation fits in better as well with that bigger picture and it's not a singular issue that you're trying to fix in terms of regenerating a space. You're, you're linking it with all of the varied outcomes and we have a real challenge around aspiration in our young people. So whenever we talk about things, we always bring it back to skills and very visible skills and how do we inspire our young people. So whatever project that might be, that's a really important factor for us. But, and again, I think, sorry, Andres, the, the point's been made that those, because so many projects take time, you know, the young people who are at primary school now will be voting by the time some of these projects are nearing completion. So how you're able to engage that next generation is crucial. And we've seen that, and sorry, in terms of examples, we've seen that with our Towns Fund. So um, in Mablethorpe, Skegness and Boston, we're delivering on the ground where there was some apathy with our communities to start with, but we've continued to, to make sure they, they know what's happening, they've got opportunities to, to continue to give their views and feedback. That's great, and thank you, for, thank you for a great question. We can probably squeeze in, I think, maybe just, just one more. Thank you. Um, Mike Savage from Arup. Um, I'd like to make just one comment and then ask a question if I can. So in relation to the car parking, I think one of the key issues that needs to be thought about in terms of removing transit of car parking is just understanding how those car parks are used. If that's driving footfall, um, then it could affect the vitality and vibrancy of the town centre. So it needs to be done in a managed way and, and we need good understanding of how that parking is being used. Um, we're working with Mike and uh, the team in uh, helping to deliver schemes like uh, the O2, which is fantastic. And um, in those types of locations, you can build a, a scale and a density, and you've got a kind of community around that can sustain those facilities. You know, the point of 15-minute cities is to try and absorb trips and enable those trips to be satisfied. Do the panel think there's sufficient information outside of the main metropolitan areas to define the scale and then density of development that's needed to create truly walkable neighbourhoods. Who'd like to try tackling that? Um, I'll, ha I'll have a go. Um, <laughs> regrettably, there's never enough data, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but again, regrettably, our world is beginning to be dominated by data. You know, there's more and more data gathering happening all the time. And um, <clears throat> I, I was absolutely astounded on a project I've been working with on uh, in the last couple of years when somebody said to me, oh, you can get mobile phone data that will give you everything you need to know about people's movements in this city. And um, 
we bought that data because uh, the mobile phone companies can sell it. And we were able to see, you know, uh, how many people travel for 10 minutes, 12 minutes from, that, from point X to point Y, how long they stay in the town center, how this, it, it, it's astounding the amount of information that you can <coughs> gather these days. Um, whether you can get it uh, for every part of the country, I don't know. I'm not, um, I'm not experienced in that. But certainly in, in a city environment, we were able to get masses and masses of data that gave us very useful information. And, and in fact, in this particular case, um, they wanted to have a bypass. And the information we gathered showed us that there wasn't that many people going through the town center to warrant building a bypass. It was all, it was all local people traveling into the town rather than traveling through the town. So we, we were able to say to the council, why are you gonna spend 100 million pounds building a bypass for that 10% volume of traffic that's through when you should be focusing on the 90% of the people who are coming into the town and asking the question, how can we make those 90% of the people come into town by means other than the car? So the data were extremely useful. And um, I don't know if that answers your question. Certainly there's a lot of data out there. You just need to know how to get hold of it. But then you also need to know how to analyze it and get the right information from it. If you get the right information, it will help you identify the correct solution. Did you want to jump in, Mike? I, yeah, I guess uh, the 15-minute city is just shorthand for good development. It's our day job. And uh, yeah, mixed use isn't a block of flats with a Tesco's. Placemaking isn't a work stream. ESG is not an embodied carbon target. It's about creating places that people can live, afford to live sustainably. And, and I guess uh, this point around information sharing is really interesting. My reflection on this conference has been that there are about 7,000 incredible talented experts here and me um, and and we've talked to ourselves about trying to solve these big issues so I, I guess my challenge to the built environment network is ne next year when we all come together whether we do workshops not panels and whether we invite some of those communities that aren't benefiting from the type of investment we're able to make in perhaps solving the the bigger problems but actually inviting those communities to come and sit with us and help them workshop some of the solutions here rather than just talking about the concepts. I'd add to that as well. There are some key partners that are missing from the discussion, aren't there, in terms of health in particular. I was really struck when you were saying that that planner said it's about health. As somebody who's working in a council, these things are all connected. You know, the, the built environment, housing in particular, some of what we've seen in terms of the challenges in housing have a real impact on people's health and that has a, a price tag attached to it that you know we all we all pay for in some way shape or form thank you i've already pushed us a little bit beyond time but i, I can't get told off anymore so i'm going to just push it a little <laughs> bit further i think um there was uh, another question from just behind our friend arab here they were almost sorry there we go. Let, let, let's, let's go. Because sorry, sorry, you were neck and neck raising your hands earlier for a question. Thank you very much. I've also got a really croaky voice, so I do apologise to everyone. Um, so I probably live in the concept of the 15-minute city. So 
Um, home for me is a couple of roads away from Tower Bridge, so I can walk to the leisure centre, walk to the supermarket, jump on a line bike. I've managed to get it down to £1.92 from London Bridge. Some of the best sites that you'll ever find in the world are just on my doorstep. The reality is that actually I only live there because I stay in a cabin on a boat on the Thames. And the reason for that is because I couldn't afford to buy a property in London. So I travel back each week to Sussex, where I did manage to buy a home. So I live in this wonderful 15-minute city, but I travel in and out of it continuously. And I was really interested at the example of Freiburg. I was lucky enough to, to visit myself with UCL. And one of the significant things around Freiburg, of course, is the continuity of leadership. But it's also the ownership of the land and the controlling of the values. And the reality is that it's so vibrant in my community. It's a bit of an extreme example. It's because the people around me are rich. They're really rich. So they fill those restaurants on a Monday night. Bermondsey High Street, that wine bar's always packed out, no matter what day of the week. Whereas if you go to a lot of other places, bad design is led by the fact that the values just don't stack up. And they often don't stack up for developers. And we can't continuously keep asking local authorities for that money because the reality is that local authorities can't. They have to achieve best value. They've got other pressing issues upon them. And I work for the NHS, so, you know, I've got a vested interest in making these things happen. So I just wanted to ask the panel, you know, do we really sacrifice good design because of affordability? Um, and how do we tackle the issues of affordability of housing in these areas as well? That that really constrain the fact of 15-minute cities coming to actual delivery and fruition. I'm not going to pretend that I can solve the problem of housing affordability, particularly not given that we're overrunning on time. But what I would say is that decentralisation, it shouldn't be the case that only people that live in really high-demand areas benefit from good design. And I do like the fact that the concept of the 15-minute city forces us to ask ourselves the question, are people getting their fair share of investment? And not just the 15-minute city, the whole levelling up agenda, all, all of that devolution agenda. I mean, there are parts of London, you know, Lewisham being one of them, where we would say our residents demonstrably have not had their fair share of London-wide infrastructure investment. But we're in, we're in a situation where you know, we, we feel aggrieved. I know that you feel aggrieved, Michelle, because you've got people who can't get on a bus. And, and really, that concept of good design should be driving investment as opposed to the other way around. It shouldn't be the case that we're sat there thinking about places and just accepting the design that comes to us. We should be leading the vision for place and we should be working with partners that want to sign up to that vision. Yeah, I, th I think we're, we're asking a lot of regeneration. I think we're asking it to solve pretty much every problem Everything. that our citizens are facing at the moment. And the reality is it can't. Uh, what, what we can do and what's in our control is to, uh, is to create inertia in the process that reduces that frictional cost of, of creating development. And as I said at the start, yeah, uh, investing properly in our planners, making planning a profession that people are excited to go into and empowering planners to shape our cities in collaboration with the communities and investing in those resources at a local authority level such that they can build that capability and skill set to unlock value, simplifying a planning process so that it doesn't take years and has a less high-risk outcome. I'm not saying give planning consents away. What I'm saying is make it a, a clearer process that people 
uh, uh, don't see as being a lottery and therefore don't price at a very high risk. And, and all of that frictional cost can then be reinvested into helping to solve some of the challenges we have, helping to deliver more affordable homes, helping to deliver other solutions that communities need. Um, you mentioned a very important word, land. Yeah. Land is, uh, it can break the whole vision. You know, if, if, you, if you're dealing with a master plan and uh, there's 20 different uh, landowners, each one with their own uh, interests and object, I, I, I've seen, you know, we wanted to connect a particular project to the town centre, but we couldn't because this guy, you know, wanted millions of pounds to let us go through it. So land, land is, is very important, the, 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 the acquisition of all the different pieces uh, and the process of doing that. And, and I can't help uh, finishing off by quoting from uh, Sir Colin Buchanan, because I, I, I worked for 22 years with Colin Buchanan and Partners, and I learned a lot um, from uh, Sir Colin. Um, and I remember one of his famous quotes was that land is the most important asset that we as human beings have and we must therefore respect it and make sure that we hand it to the next generations so that we don't waste it or misuse it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this places a lot of responsibility on all of us, particularly the professionals working in the built environment. And I'll finish off then. I think hmm. the aspirational design, I'll give an example up in Mablethorpe. So Mablethorpe is one, you know, is a stunning beach, a beautiful, beautiful beach, but it's one of our coastal seaside resorts that's probably um, would have been at its prime in 1950. Um, but we were able through the, through again, it's, it's, it's Towns Fund, uh, a truly aspirational building called the Colonnade. So we've been able to demolish what was there, which was just a concrete, you know, very tired, very dated. And now that colonnade, when that gets built, it is aspirational, it is transformational. We've only been able to do that because we have had that in public sector intervention through the Towns Fund. Um, our land values are very low, uh, so therefore the profit margins are, again, don't necessarily attract inward investment. So therefore, the council will end up operating that, but we, our ambition is that that will be a, a, a building a concept that then is, is taken into private ownership once the, once the values are there because it's been built. But also it raises the whole aspiration around it. Um, for me, I can see a vision of modular housing really coming through there, so that starts to pick up the, the different type of housing coming through, supply chains, etc. But aspirational design that mirrors that, that shifts the whole, you know, it, it shifts seasonality, workforce, it shifts and raises ambition, aspiration in our young people that actually that's a place growing up that you think I just need to leave when I get to 16 because there's nothing much going on for me here. Um, and it changes what comes in. So good design is really transformational. But as we've said all the way through, I think it's a common theme. It's those other stakeholders that are there at the table with you. It's the other uh, skills and knowledge that you're able to draw in that gets those projects off the ground and then delivered and then having the impact in the community. So, very boringly, it's around that whole collaboration and, again, true collaboration in terms of drawing skills. Thank you all, and thank you for, thank you for a great, great question. Thank you to Landsec again for supporting this session, and most of all, of course, thank you to the panel for sharing their thoughts. Please give them a hand.